Good to see everyone out this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll be starting there in just a moment. Got to say, it, it's just been good to see Brother Kent up and, and being able to participate in the, in the uh, same function that he was before he had that surgery. I just appreciate being able to hear him lead singing again and uh, also uh, teaching the Bible class in this next month. I, it's just it's, it's good to be able to see him uh, again just functioning in that way once more and it's not easy. It's still difficult for him but he, he, he's just wanting to get more active once again and that's just that kind of attitude is infectious and I just appreciate that so much. But it's good to see everyone out this morning, uh, especially with it being so stormy and rainy. I'm glad everyone got here safe and just pray that uh, everything will just remain and stay safe. Uh, I think it's um, kind of perfect, perfect atmosphere outside for some of the things we're going to be talking about this morning as you uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. But before we read that, I would, I would just like to ask a couple of questions. And you may just need to hearken back to... Uh, maybe earlier days for some of us if we're out of school. But imagine if you were back in your high school days when tests were really nerve-wracking uh, and, and they, you know, they had a very heavy toll on your academic career. And young people, middle schoolers, high schoolers, just think about this. If, if you knew that a big test was coming up and your teacher came up to you and said, what if you could get the problems to all? Uh, of the questions that are going to be on the test. What if, what if I told you that you can know every single question that was going to be on the test? That My ears would perk up pretty quickly. <laughs> I'd, I'd be thinking, okay, what, what exactly do I need to do here? What exactly are the brownie points that I need to achieve to get some of those problems? What if the teacher after that said, not only will I give you the problems that you're going to see on the test, I'm going to give you the solutions. I'm going to give you the actual work that you have to put on there to, to actually get to the answers, because especially in the math classes today, you, you have to put every single step. You're not allowed to just put the answer if you already know it. You've got to write through every single thing, and that was just a hassle that was so annoying. But here he says, I'm going to give you even that part. Now, again, you, you think about that, and especially for me, I'd be listening to that person, and I'd be saying, what's the catch? Well, the catch is, if you don't take these, if you don't listen... If you don't hear what I have to tell you, you will fail. Because this test is going to be very difficult. It's going to be very hard. And so you can either take what I have to say, the help that I want to give you, and you can pass, or you can fail along with everybody else. I tell you what, especially with my academic career, I was going to take him up on that offer. I was going to say, I will do whatever you want me to do. Give me the problems. Give me the solutions. And, and let's ace this test. Well, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher, Solomon, I think he does this all throughout the book. And ultimately, when you get to the end of the book, what he says is really what he kind of sprinkles all the way throughout is, here's the conclusion. Here are the answers. Here are some of the problems you're going to see. But the conclusion is this. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 in verse 13 and 14 he says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So this is the answer. He says, the conclusion is fear God and keep His commandments. 
Not just to one person, not just to a few, but to all people. Every single person is going to have to go through this test. And you're either going to fail or you're going to pass. Now, what we have all throughout Ecclesiastes is Solomon putting everything that man generally tries to use to find meaning in life, to try and find fulfillment in their lives, and he's putting all of these common things to the test, but giving us the results at every single turn. We're not going to go through an exhaustive list this morning, just maybe uh, just a few brief points that kind of hopefully encompass a lot of what he has to say all throughout the book. But I just want to start by looking at Solomon, who I think is the best test subject for this. If you're going to talk about someone who can find the most accurate answer, the most in-depth answer, uh, I think Solomon is the best person for the job. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, in verse 1 it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Skip down to verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Now, Solomon the king here, the, the son of David, takes this job upon himself to test all of these things under the sun and, and, and to see if they provide any meaning in life, any fulfillment, as we were talking about a moment ago. All of the things that the people of the world do every single day, and even, unfortunately, some Christians. And what he says over and over again is, from the very beginning, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, I do want to just pause for a second. You, you see on the screen in quotation marks that notion of under the sun. This comes up over and over again throughout the book. And it's important that we understand what he means by that. When, when he says, when he talks about labor or when he talks about everything that is vain under the sun, you think about it like this. We understand that we live with God above us. We understand if, if, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, you understand that we have a God above us that watches over us. And so, therefore, we are under him. But the non-believer, to everyone who does not care about God or does not believe in him, all they have is life under the sun. All they have is the sun above them. That's the only care. That's the only provision they have. They don't have a loving, caring taskmaster like God. Now, I'll tell you. I was outside all day yesterday when the sun was actually out for the first time in over, what has it been, two years now? Anyway, the, the, I was outside all day. And I'll tell you what, if the sun is the only thing that's watching over us, that is a cruel and burning taskmaster. I, I have the, the shades of red to prove it. it. It is a toilsome thing to labor under the sun all day. It's an entirely different thing to labor under God. And I think this is the main di distinction that Solomon tries to make all throughout is if you live under the sun, what he's talking about is those who have no care for God, those who have no provision from God, they're only focused on life, this life that is but a vapor. And, and that is the way that the people of the world live. People that do not have God, they live only under the sun. And what he says is if this is the life that you live, it's all vanity. If this is the life you live without God, there's no hope. There is no rest. There is nothing good for you to take from this. There's only more labor. There's only more downfalls. There's only more pitfalls. 
And so we need to understand that from the very beginning, that when he talks about under the sun, he's talking about those who only have this life in mind and not the life that comes after, that eternal life. So we just need to understand that before we go on. Now, thinking about Solomon being the best test subject here, the reason I say that is because as king, he had a lot more capability than just the average Joe. As king, he had the, the, the greatest means, he had the greatest power, the greatest riches, the greatest authority to succeed. There is no other person that could say, I think I could do better. There is no other person that had nearly the same capacity to succeed as Solomon did. Because he was the king. What he says goes. Not only that, but he wasn't, it's not like he didn't have the, the funds to try and go through this life under the sun and see if there's any meaning. He had it all. In fact, the most prosperous moment in Israel's history was when Solomon was king. You remember what it says about the silver in the kingdom? They, they're, they're, like pebbles on the they're like pebbles on the side of the road. That is prosperous. But with that being said, all of the things that Solomon has, he had the best, best chance to succeed in life under the sun without God. But what he says ultimately is none of it. None of it's worth it. Now, to add on to that, not only did he have the, the, all the means, the power, the riches, authority, but more than any of that, he had the wisdom to succeed. Go over to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse 9. Look at what he says here as he talks about this task that he put himself under. It says in verse 9 of chapter 2, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Look especially at what he says in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? I think especially at the end of that verse, that's the key. Who could possibly do the same level of things? Who could possibly do nearly as much as the king has done? And what he says, and what he says even prior to this is, there's nothing new under the sun. No one will ever be able to do what he did. No one will ever be able to do uh, even close to what he did. Sometimes people say, you hear this... Uh, you hear this a lot when it comes to the conversation of socialism. Sometimes people will come up and they'll be talking against socialism and they'll say, it has never worked in the history of man. And someone else comes up and says, well, they just didn't do it right. <laughs> I don't know. If it keeps failing the test, it seems to be that there's a little more than just people aren't doing something right. And I think sometimes people approach the Bible in this way. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I would have done it better. I would have done it differently. Solomon says I had more capability than anyone ever had or ever will have, and yet I still failed. He talks about having wisdom by his side. You understand that when he took pleasure upon himself, when he took all of the, all of the things that the world tends to use to try and have fun in this life, essentially what this means is, I, and I wasn't just going to fall where everyone else fall. I, I wasn't going to fall like where the fools do. I had wisdom to guide me. And so I was doing this in the best way possible, whether it, becomes, whether it means becoming drunk, whether it means giving, uh, giving myself all kinds of wives and concubines. I had the wisdom. If anyone was going to be able to work their way around it mentally and plan appropriately, it was going to be me. And not even that was able to do it. 
That is important to remember because no one can say, oh, well, I would have done it. I would have succeeded. You wouldn't have. Not one of us could. And so with all that being said, he absolutely is the best test subject for this matter. And, and so now what I want to do is just end with a brief list of what did he put to the test that he says failed under the sun. Just a few things here. And first of all, I would say just from the beginning, he talks about really education, intellectualism. And this is uh, really termed as wisdom. Uh, so coming back to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse 12 where we left off. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? Skipping on to verse 13. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them all. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. That's another thing that I think would, be, um, would behoove us to, to make note of. Whenever you're just going through it, your own personal study of Ecclesiastes, note how many times he mentions the oncoming date of death. God wants us to think about that. And one of the reasons is because it's coming for all. And it doesn't matter whether you are the most intellectual of them all or you have nothing to, to say about, about your own wisdom, about your own knowledge. Now, let me just say, I, I, education is good. It's not, even in verse 13, he says, listen, wisdom still excels folly. Just as light excels darkness. It's still better, but when you're thinking about only under the sun, he continues on to say, it's not worth it. Because you die just like the fool. You die just like the dumbest person out there. The same fate befalls everyone. And so education is good, but not when it is the highest or the primary goal. I, I tell you what, children, more children are lost to college campuses because their parents spent more time as they grew up talking about the colossal failure of not getting a degree more than the mortal failure of salvation. And not just that, but being more like Christ. I remember hearing parents tell my, my friends growing up, this is unfortunate, uh, not what they said, I like what they said, but it didn't really seem like they meant it. They would say things like, I don't care if you're flipping hamburgers for the rest of your life. If you're a Christian, I'll be proud of you. That's a beautiful thing to say. It should be that the proudest we can be is when our family members, our child, becomes a Christian and remains faithful. It doesn't matter what their job is. It doesn't matter what, the, what degree they may have. It doesn't matter if they have the master's degree or not. That is the most proud that I could be. But I tell you, I had friends who their parents said that, but ultimately what they showed is they did care more about the degree because they pushed way harder on their grades in school than they did on daily Bible reading. They pushed way harder on making sure that the homework was done, but not as hard on making sure that their Bible lessons were done before they got there. That's a problem. And what that does is create a disconnect in, in people's minds, especially young minds. And they see that and they say, well, this, this does matter more. What did Jesus say again? It profits man nothing to give his whole soul for the whole world, but for a degree. No, that's not what he says. It profits nothing. If we lose our soul, not for, not for anything. Salvation, Jesus needs to be the focal point of our life, of our being. 
and not just mere intellectualism. Now, coming back to uh, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes in verse 26, he says, For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. So once again, it's not like he's saying that wisdom altogether is bad. As we already looked at in verse 13, it's clear that it's still something that is good for us. But wisdom, knowledge, can only pay off when it begins and it ends with God. Go over to chapter 8 in verse 16. Chapter 8 in verse 16. He says, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth even though one should never sleep by uh, sleep day or night. And I saw every work of God. What, how does he end the thought? I concluded that men cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, oh, I know, he cannot discover. And what you have is a lot of the time today, there's a lot of secular scientists that say, oh, we know how everything works, and yet on the other hand, they, don't, they can't even admit that there is such a thing as a biological man and a woman. You have scientists that say, oh, we know how everything works. It, it was not long ago, in just a couple of decades, that scientists were saying, oh, the earth is 30 million years old. And in the span of a decade, it went from 30 million to 30 billion. <laughs> that's, that's not a slight adjustment. Yeah, we like to say, oh, I know, I know. No, we don't know. The world hates not knowing everything. And they can't rest in that. But God's people can find rest in the fact that, one, God knows. And secondly, God knows best. I don't have to know everything. I can find rest in the fact that God, he knows everything that needs to be known. And I can take solace in that. Well, he doesn't end there. He just continues on. And you can go back to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. He also talks about not only wisdom and folly, but he also talks about the futility of labor. Picking up in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Remember, this is Solomon, who had all the means who had more means than anyone else to make this happen. But he says, I hated life while trying to find meaning in this. Verse 18, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Now what's funny is I remember talking to my dad a long time ago about Ecclesiastes. And we would read through this and we just thought, this is so strange because this is like the most depressing book I've ever read. It's just everything is bad, everything is gloomy. Now, the problem is we were, we were overlooking some of the passages where Paul says, now this is, this is what life is like under the sun. But let me tell you what it's like under God. And so, just understand, every time it seems gloomy, every time it seems depressing, it's because it is. That's what life is like under the sun. 
And he says this even about work, even about riches, even about the fruit of one's labor. Even when you do well, what happens? You're going to die someday. And you're going to have to give your legacy to someone who didn't put that sweat, blood, and tears into, the, into that labor, into the fruit of that labor. And, and one of the constant things he brings up as well, and especially when it comes to labor and riches, is he talks about striving after wind. Let me ask you something. Have you ever striven after wind? You know what that looks like? It means trying to hold air in your hand. What, can you see, what do I have in my hand? Nothing. There's no substance. There's nothing. You try to strive after wind. You try to hold wind in your hair. hand. You can't do it. It's impossible. Now, it's, what, what he's trying to make, what connection he's trying to make here is, is it's just as depressing under the sun because the man who works endlessly knows no rest. And in the end, he has nothing to show for it. Sometimes people have said, <laughs> and it always kind of made me laugh. People say, you know, the person who dies with the most toys wins. But no, the person who dies with the most toys, he's dead. He's, he dies. There's nothing after that. He doesn't get to take any of that with him. But I, hey, it's, it's, a funny little, it's a funny little platitude that people say. It's not true. He, what you have is someone who grasped nothing but air at the end of their life. And what is it that? It's nothing but sorrowful. And no, it brings nothing but despair. The man who attains much won't be able to take it with him. Over in uh, chapter 5 in verse 16. He says, this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. This person worked so hard. But even the man that worked day and night, 24 hours a day, even the man that worked 80 hours in one week, what's that going to mean in eternity? What is it going to mean in eternity, especially for the one that did all that and thought nothing of God? It's going to be even worse. Because in the end, they're going to realize that they should have known better. And they worked for no profit. Well, not only that, but he also begins to talk about things like pleasure, entertainment, even, even the sexual relationships. You know, Solomon, he lived it up. But there was no prophet under the sun. Go back to chapter 2 in verse 3. <laughs> Look at what all of the things he says he did. In verse 3 of chapter 2, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven in the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought males and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in, in Jerusalem. Once again, just, just note, better than anyone who had preceded him in Jerusalem. And then, coming back to verse 8, Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Skip down to verse 11. Then I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. We, we read verse 11 before, but I, I like that because it's connected to what he was talking about at the very beginning of chapter 2. Solomon lived it up. And he, he would have done it better than anyone else because, you know, it was on his own dime, but he had plenty of that to spare. Whereas other people, they got to budget that kind of thing out. They got to budget out the partying, budget out the, 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 the 
laborious and lasciviousness uh, of, of weekends. Let me tell you, this doesn't mean that there was no temporal pleasure. It doesn't mean that there, is, that there was just no pleasure whatsoever in even the sinful things that he engaged in. But it was just that. It was temporary. It did not last. Not only that, at the end of verse 8, uh, it's interesting in my Bible there's a hyphen and then it talks about many concubines. And we know what that is. It's really talking about the sexual relationship there. And so as he talks about that, he says, even this was void of any meaning. Go up to verse 1. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself and behold it to his futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? Nothing. There are so many people today that try to fill their lives. They try to fulfill their loneliness through sexual escapades with anyone that they can find. Anyone that they deem appropriate. And what happens is it never ends. Because even if there's a moment, even if there's just one second of, of brief lapse of that loneliness, guess what? It comes right back. And in fact, it comes right back with a vengeance because when the sun comes up in the morning, it exposes the shame of the previous night or the previous weekend. People think that loneliness can be satisfied through sexual fulfillment. Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, says it accomplished nothing. I think he would know better than anybody else. Some men foolishly, foolishly like to brag about their, about their endeavors in that kind of realm, in the, in the physical realm. Solomon says, it's nothing to brag about. It brings, no, it, brings no, it brings no ultimate lasting satisfaction or pleasure. Sometimes people talk about sexual liberty and, and, and sexual expression. That sounds cute at first until you see the actual experience. You see the consequences that come with the sexual revolution of the 60s ever since. AIDS just completely, I mean, that's, that was an epidemic. You have single parenthood. You have the destruction of families, destruction of the, of the family unit. Exponential stress for those single parents who don't have any help. I tell you, I've seen that firsthand, and it is ugly. It's not a life that, that, that anyone really looks at and says, oh, I want that. No. All it does is bring more heartache, it brings more despair, and more depression. And, and the reason is because meaning, fulfillment, is never attained. The hunger for it increases, and the destruction just continues. But it's never attained. And this, and this is Solomon's words. This, this didn't do it. This was not enough. It brought nothing of lasting consequence. That was, uh, that was a blessing. Rather only more pain. Not only that, but he also talks about living without God over in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 beginning in verse 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 beginning in verse 8, he says, "No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there's no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt." So then I have seen <clears throat> The wicked buried those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and, many, and may, may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly." 
but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Now you think about that. Often Christians, people who are believers, will see what's going on around them, and they'll see the life that they have lived trying to be pure and holy for God, and they say the same thing that the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Surely in vain I have kept myself pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have done all of these things, and it's been for naught. It's been for nothing. That's the temptation of the devil. That is the lie of the devil. That it's been for nothing. The lie of the devil is that, hey, living wickedly, living rebelliously against God, living as an evil person, that pays off. It never does. Solomon, the king, discerned and judged the people's problems every day. Solomon says, out of all the problems I've watched, out of all the problems I've dealt with, not one evil person ever truly succeeded. While he may prolong his life, can he ultimately escape death? He may lengthen it, but not forever. And so, it's futility. While he may delay consequences, can he outrun them altogether? No, he even ends by saying, the one who fears God, that's the one who has the benefit. The one who doesn't, their days are filled with evil, and it's going to be filled with worse things in eternity. Well, finally, and again, this is an exhaustive list, but finally, go to chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. How Solomon ends this whole discourse here. In verse 9 of chapter 11. He says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Now, I would just say, in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 11, he's not saying, hey, when he says, follow the impulses of your heart, he's not saying, Do, follow the impulses of sin. What he's saying is, enjoy your youth. Be a kid. Be a child. Don't grow up so fast. And, but, but understand, that warning at the end of verse 9, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. And so it's not like he's abandoned. He's not saying, just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter if it's sinful. He's saying, no, no, it still matters. But you can be a kid, and you, can have, and you can have the good from that. There is good to be taken from that. But ultimately, the way he ends is differently than what a lot of people think. It's good to be a kid, but that doesn't mean don't think about God. What Solomon says is it's better to think about him from the day of birth. It is better to have God in your life from the very beginning than to wait long, long, long till you're in the latter end of your life. And you have nothing but regrets, nothing but disappointments from the past stupid decisions you made that were outside of God. Sometimes I think even Christians fall for this, this subtle temptation of the devil to, to think that it's okay for young people to sow their wild oats. You know what happens when people sow wild oats? What are they going to reap? So no, it's not good for young people to do that. It's better for them to remember their creator in the days of their youth. God says it is best for young people to grow up in him. Do we truly believe that? Or do we push all of these things aside and think about God later? All of these things that we've talked about this morning. Is it better for, for us to just give in to all those things and then maybe we'll get to God later? Put him on the back burner. That's never what God says we're allowed to do. 
In fact, we're commanded the very opposite. You keep me in mind. You never stop thinking about me. You never stop meditating on me. This is the very best way to live. The last passage I want to read is in chapter 3 and verse 12. You've already seen all of these things that he says are vanity and futility. And my goal is not to make you depressed with this lesson. My goal in this lesson is to make clear that regardless of what anyone says, regardless of what the world says, regardless of what even some Christians may say, the best thing for us, the gift of life, is God. Nothing else. Nothing that the devil wants to give to us, nothing that the world wants to give to us. A relationship with God, that, that's where it's at. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has already been, been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. And so what does he say here? Under the sun where people hate life, having to work every single day and having no rest, he says, in God, you can have rest. In God, you can actually be satisfied with the day's work. I would just say, without God and without that relationship, there is no hope for that kind of rest. You may be a Christian, and you may be struggling with things like depression, like anxiety, fatigue for that matter, in doing good. Maybe you just need to look more into Solomon's testimony here. And see, all the things that, that the world promises you is going to bring fulfillment. And he says, I, I promise you it's not, and I know better. Maybe we just need to apply this book a little bit more to our lives. But if you are not a Christian, I'll tell you what, we are all living under the sun, period. And, and it is very difficult. It's hard. It brings much, much fatigue and, and sorrow. But at the end of the day, if you don't have God, you have no respite. You have no rest. There is nothing for you to take assurance and confidence in. Only God's people have that blessing. And so the question is, do you want that? Do you want that rest? Do you want that satisfaction? Do you want that fulfillment of life, meaning in life? You can find it here. Not, not at Lakeside, not in, not in certain individuals, in Jesus, in God. Are you willing to put him into your life, make him your life, have Christ in you, the hope of glory? You have to be willing to follow his conditions to be saved. You have to be willing to obey him to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of that body. Do you believe that he is the Christ? Do you believe his words? Are you willing to hear what he has to say? Willing to repent of everything that he says you need to do away with? Confess his name, confess your allegiance to him. And be baptized into his death and newness of life. You can have that this morning. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.